Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Jack Gas. Today's episode of Learte de Arme, we're joined with Jack Gasman. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Yeah, it's yeah, great to have for you being on, on, Jack. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Jack, uh, for those who don't know about you, uh, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and how you got started in Western martial arts? Well, um, I got started in Hema in about 2008. Um, ended up going to uh, an event in Germany that I was quite lucky to go to. Scott Brown, Jake Norwood, Alex Kiermeyer, Phil and Caroline Marshall, a whole bunch of the kind of like current names <laughs> the of the time <laughs> yeah. uh, were there. And I just kind of wandered in and stumbled into this. I've been doing a little bit of work via uh, Christian Tobler's Secrets of the German Longsword, but um, I just kind of wandered into this and then kind of got uh, permanently hooked um, and kind of been working on it since then. My main focus has been um, kind of Lichtenauer's uh, Longsword and the Rossfechten sections since then. I, I've <clears throat> That's always been a kind of a fascination of of mine, the context has really been a really important aspect of how I relate to fencing because mm -hmm. I mean, at that point I was even training um, in Switzerland in a small town and our training hall was like 10 minutes away from a battlefield where the canton ha had around in the early 15th century fought, a, fought off uh, the prince bishop using weapons like this and there we have um the uh, the uh, there's a couple um hugo wittenviller's uh fencing manuscript uh comes from a from nobles who would have been fighting that canton and involves how to fight halberds uh from horseback and stuff like that so it's always been awesome. the context has always been important to me um and i got very interested in understanding kind of cavalry and how what cavalry was like at the period um and then i so I, I started getting into that doing a little bit more research i published with acta i started doing a little bit more stuff there i presented some of my findings at the international medieval congress leads a few a uh, few years running um in the meantime i've also been teaching and competing um i do some uh film work as well stunts and stuff just for the uh, for the hell of it, and um, so yeah, uh, I, I I teach around Europe and the U.S. Some people probably have seen me at workshops around the U.S. Um, but yeah, no, this is just, uh, Hema just kind of grabbed me with both hands and hasn't let go. Yeah, I mean, you've basically lived up to your namesake. You're <laughs> you're a jack of all trades. I mean, you've done it all, and it seems like you've done it all at a high level. Um, you know, I, I'm, 
I've, I've heard amazing exploits of your fencing uh, in competition and, and uh, <laughs> the martiality of your your uh, your approach um, and how a lot it, that's struck a lot of people um, in terms of like a higher level competition and actually taking that um, and, and keeping that level of martiality into a higher level competition. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I don't know who was spreading such calumny, but uh, good on them. <laughs> uh, we're, we're keeping a shit list. <laughs> no, um, but I, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's important, right? Like, uh, I, I think, I think we're kindred spirits in a way and that, uh, especially, you know, the three of us here and that I think, I think we approach him in the same way. Um, you know, we, we're just as interested in the H as the MA, um, but we just still try to do all of them at a high level. So, I think really, if you're if you're really doing your if you're doing the work to liaise and have a have a good relationship with interpreters and researchers, you it definitely does help your fencing. It does. It's not magic. It won't. It won't. You know. I won't do the deadlifts for you and the sprints and the things that you need to do to have a function, a body that can you can plug the software into for fencing. But if you understand all the fencing as a whole the, and refer back to sources as a way to fix problems, I think it definitely does improve your fencing. Like you can get so far, only so far with kind of like hunches. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> You also kind of lose sight a little bit too, I think, right? Don't you? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, like I, I say that you can only get so far, but there are people like you, you can get very like you don't have to be good at sources to like win things or stuff. But I think it makes you a more well-rounded fencer who can compete in more different formats. And I think if that's uh, if you, the martial arts side of you side is important to you, that's. That's a big thing, and yeah, it's just more fun. I find when when you can yeah. look at look at what you're doing and say this is something that refers back to something that was actually real and actually happened, and I'm connecting to that aspect of things. Yeah, it does. It, it makes you feel like you're you're touching history, like it, it becomes tangible in a way. Um, at least as as a history nerd, you know that's what's always yeah. appealed to me. You know, it's like I I feel like it brings me that much closer to a, a, a time period where I could have only dreamed about that playing with, I don't know, toys as a child, you know, like just kind of <laughs> yeah. like actually being able to touch the history in a way and, you know, learning about it and, and providing that context just makes it feel um, very tangible. So, yeah, I, I often compare HEMA to like the, the space program in a way. Um, only that instead of going to different planets, you're kind, you're you're touching a, a different time and society. You know, like you know, because HEMA is extremely interdisciplinary in the same way the space program was. Like you have so many different disciplines working together, which is kind of bo- both a strength and a weakness, just uh, in some ways. Yeah. <clears throat> like you have your researchers who are a little bit like your. Uh, Astronomers and they go out and they find this this context or this this source, and then you have your interpreters who are a bit like your physicists to calculate a way to get to that source. Like, well, this is what it could mean, you know. After we translate it and interpret it, 
and then you have your coaches who kind of a bit like your engineers were like, well, I think I can build you a rocket that can get someone from here to there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then you have your fencers who are a little bit your astronaut flyboys who are the ones who get to like, who are like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go in this crazy contraption and risk a concussion to go and try this thing out. Right. Um, and then come back. And then you've got your organizers who are like your pre-launch operations and your artists who are doing memes and everything about it to make people want to do this <laughs> stuff. And, and the entire community needs to kind of be on, working together. Otherwise, you, you don't really have a space program. You just have a bunch – you have a bunch of astronauts who are like getting together on weekends and in a pool putting – fixing a, a model of a, of a satellite underwater in diving suits and it's a cool, fun hobby – and you have guys planning launch codes, that's kind of neat, and some people looking at planets. But when you have everybody working together, like, on the same page, then you have something, I think, that's really special. And you start really understanding history and the period in a much, much deeper way. And, like, that's something I've, I've seen, like, going to the medieval Medievalist Congress leads and stuff, and also talking, working on set and stuff like there's certain aspects that combining all those different disciplines and having access to all those different specialists in a kind of collaborative scenario that gives you a really solid holistic view of, of some of the stuff that's going on that really kind of brings something to the table, I feel. Yeah, that's a, an incredibly apt and, and perfect analogy, I think. That's, that's really <laughs> solid. You're a physicist now, Stephen. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's better than having to do real physics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, Although that would be interesting would be a, a side study purely to, to look at the physics of how blades interact in, in, in relation to the bodies and whatnot. That's a... Another yeah. subject that I find interesting to look at it from the just what is possible and uh, mm -hmm. studying how all the different little angles and edge alignments and whatnot interact. Yeah, I mean, there was actually, I was just at Dijon and there's a guy who's doing a super interesting project where he's using, he's a, he's a guy researching gladiatorial combat and mm -hmm. he's been using uh, AI to analyze footage taken from like, his mobile phone footage uh -huh. and uh, turn it into uh, mocap renders and compare and have AI then compare those mocap renders to um, like frescoes uh -huh. and show up every time that the, 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 the sparring matches the fresco to try and analyze the sparring and see how close it's getting to sources. So I've been, who, who knows where that'll go? I'm going to try and get, Convince him to see if we can start, start using that for other things. Yeah, start. Well, start I mean, even if. Well, like you could theoretically, according uh, he says, with a not with if you did a little bit more work on it, you might be able to um, use AI to compare uh, tournament footage to um, examples of say uh, a play from a source, like you, right? You know. And then you'd be able to basically just extract all tournament examples of uh, Duplirin in a that all tournament footage examples that fit du the Duplirin plays, or whatever Bolognese play you want to you're looking at, and they're just go. Brrr, these are all the examples of it of 
some things that fit that play from tournaments. Nice. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm, uh, so just recently, I, uh, because of this whole Achillini thing, I've been on this uh, this big kick, this big Achillini kick. And looking at Alessandro Achillini, I've been looking at his life to better understand um, uh, Giovanni Filotio's life. And um, in looking at it, I started looking at some of like his philosophical works and his discussions on Aristotle. And I started thinking to myself, wait a second, like if this is the guy who would have been the one who's kind of like bringing Aristotle to the table at the Bentivoglio household because he was a courtier with the with the Bentivoglio, then is this kind of what starts that conversation where we eventually see Vigiani using Aristotle to describe tempo? Is this kind of like, is this the origin of that? Is this kind of like the origin? Of, I mean, I know Aristotle existed in, in fencing well before this, but from a, from a Bentivoglio pr- perspective, is there perhaps even like, like if we look at Marazzo and Manciolino, is there a different intent of like thinking about this perhaps from Achiellini's perspective where he wasn't just uh, a student of Aristotle, but he was also a student of Occam. Um, and so I'm, I've, I've got this like weird rabbit hole that I'm kind of like putting off to the side that eventually I want to kind of go into. Um, but uh, that's like, you know, nerd level 10,000. So uh, like I said, I, yeah, no, I, I, I got to put it on. I'm down for that. Like, there's some super interesting stuff where you go into Aristotelian concepts of time and distance, or specifically how they don't. That for Aristotle, there's very little difference. There's no difference between time and distance. They're almost equal to each other. Yeah. And you have this idea of the moment before the time being split before the moment, and then after the moment, and it's just like this cascade. It just kind of zips along these, and then the the. The next, the next moment becomes the now, and then. It, so, it, from a German perspective, it also gets really interesting. And of course, you had different ideas of what Aristotle meant, even in the medi- uh, medieval period. So, it's very, you know, very possible that you have this specifically Bentivolian concept that gets kind of um, gets carried on. Yeah, yeah, it's um. It's pretty interesting, but Lichtenauer, you know, I guess, well, maybe not Lichtenauer specifically, but um, in uh, in the Dobringer Tirtis, doesn't it mention, like, that Lichtenauer had studied Aristotle, or it mentions Aristotle to some degree? Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it mentions him and attributes, as Aristotle says, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, so there is definite, there, there is um, some relationship to Aristotelian teaching in three two two seven a, um, I'm. It's debatable how much Lichtenauer himself was into it. I think it was probably pretty much fairly off a at the time. If he's play, if it all kind of comes down to who you think Lichtenauer was and what circles he 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 kind of traveled in. If he was working with higher nobility, he probably would have been trying to keep that educate that educational level um of you know being able to speak that kind of educated lang- language and frame the concepts like that if he was just a, a some guy who from the lower classes who was just insanely good at fencing and ended up getting noticed or or his students ended up getting noticed then it could have then it might have just been a uh, a back backlog thing of like you know these things that he's talking about—they're actually in Aristotle, which means he's actually just because he's poor doesn't mean he's wrong. 
Yeah. You know. Yeah, kind of way to justify um, his claims. Yeah, it's 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 you always have to be a little bit careful about where where you the see Lichnauer coming from. It's a tricky one with Lichnauer because you have so little information ab- about him if he were and yet he gets so popular mm-hmm. and becomes such a a household name by the end of the 15th century that you know the his the his school basically gets taken up as the imperial school of fencing by by Maximilian with the Marxbooter charter so there's like this goes from literally nothing a nobody that we don't we have very little details about maybe maybe someone of the it got uh something got burnt or lost whatever details we might have about him to like someone who's so famous um but yeah i i that's a it's an interesting question that i think we might even be going like the direction we're going in with the with the kind of germanic cavalry organizations might also kind of touch on where that might come in come from because you as uh, we'll maybe get into it later but in Germany at least you have this def- definitely this underswell of kind of professional light cavalry class that seems to be working with the nobility in some way yeah and I mean they they had been like that for a long time right like I mean really kind of dating back to like the hundred years war period when you had a lot of mercenaries coming down into Italy like you had the Barbutes um, and a lot of German companies that really kind of like forged their wealth, like including the Habsburgs, right? That's kind of how the, the Habsburgs got as powerful as they did is because they came down to Italy as condottieri, um, you know, stole a bunch of money and then, you know, became, bribed their way to, to being emperors, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for, 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 for a long, long time, I mean, if you weren't doing summer job, summer jobs in France, you're doing summer jobs in, in, in Italy to, yeah. to make ends meet, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know if there wasn't any local war, you had to, you had to go freelancing in Italy Yeah, yeah. and the, the, the pay was good, you know, it, it, the, the weather was was better. You know, the fighting was less dangerous uh, compared to like you know getting into it with the locals. You know, you could everything was seemed pretty civilized and organized compared to like I don't know going fighting the Scots or the Swedes, yeah, or your local free city militia or your Swiss or your uh, or your um, uh, your Hussites. So, you know, things yeah, could get kind of nasty up there. There was a, just a lot more loot to be had. Italy, northern Italy yeah. was pretty – it was close – I mean it was basically industrialized except it didn't have coal. <laughs> yeah. But it used yeah. so much of like water technology. They just had wealth out the wazoo plus they were at the sort of crux of trade. So yeah, exactly. I mean the, 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 pay w- the pay was just so much better. The the Everything about it was just so, so much more lucrative compared to just – you know, feuding over a few apple trees. Right, up, exactly. Up oh, I took that guy's sheep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think we touched on that a bit, right, Stephen? By the time we got to in our St. Petronius Day episode when we were going through the history of Bologna, um, mm-hmm. by the time we got to, I think it's Frederick II, or no, excuse me, I think it was Frederick Barbarossa. Um, but I think Frederick II is the one who does end up coming down to Italy and like he, he sees the, um, the technology that's in the city of Bologna 
and he's like, wow, this is amazing. And he asked the Bolognese if he could, uh, you know, get some schematics and kind of like <laughs> build his own facilities. And they were like, uh, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, your tour is done. <laughs> Let us show you the door. <laughs> this, this tour was not sponsored by corporate espionage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you do have like by by the by the 15th century, you do start to have the the German free cities um, and the Huns and everything catching up. But a lot of that wealth seems to be really focused in the free cities and yeah. not really shared outside of them. Um, I mean, isn't that basically like every German board game is essentially like a tiny little city with money, and then there's like little robber barons of some kind trying to steal <laughs> it from the outside? Yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 Jungian memory goes deep. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, that, that I mean that is that was the kind of like uh, Renaissance experience for Germany. <laughs> I I think you know we do have right. some shared experiences though. I I think you know especially what makes up guilds. We we think about well what makes up free cities. I think a lot of times we think about guilds, right? Like they kind of in some way. Whether it's it's always for the better, because it's kind of an exploitive process uh, forming a guild, you know? You kind of control your prices yeah. and you control labor, so you have this, like, you know, this kind of monopoly. They, or they, they intended to create monopoly. You say that like sometimes. it's a bad thing. No, no. <laughs> Look, I guess it depends on who your customers are, right? It, it, limits, it limits who can actually buy your products, uh, which is, you know, it cuts out part of society. So, um, but, you know, I think... We think about guild structure a lot of times uh, north of the Alps, thinking about Germans, uh, especially the Dutch. Um, you know, Stephen and I, I think found a lot of guild information down in, in Bologna and in Italy and like their reliance on guilds and, and how, how structured society was around guilds and how like guild alliances could dictate you know, political swings. Like the Bentivoglio were always relying on the, on the butchers and you know, without the butchers that they basically would have lost power multiple times. And, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating how they structured even like law, political law around butchers to make sure mm -hmm. that butchers could still carry weapons. What was, we know that like the, the Marx Bruto were a guild and that there was a lot of guild activity amongst the uh, sort of the German populations. And we see it throughout like German fencing history. Um, what is, what is kind of the role of guilds um, overall and sort of the, um, the German traditions. Well, this is this is something you should definitely like have Jean Chandler in to just go completely nerdy on because this is <laughs> yeah. really his thing. Um, but I'll, just like on a on a basic level, um, German free cities kind of looking at it from my angle of research, German free cities had the basic issue that it need they needed to be politically autonomous which meant they needed to be militarily autonomous right. which needed meant they needed the ability to raise armies or fighting forces whether you want to call them armies or not um, and you needed all the main aspects of an army covered um, and that included Light infantry, heavy infantry, uh, cavalry um, in the period. And depend, depending on 
wealth, you were sort you were sorted into wealth brackets, and then you depending on that wealth bracket, you then had to provide a certain amount of gear or provide a certain kind of service. And because a political organization was usually organized around the guilds, you had had, depending on which, on different cities, different cities had different ways of doing, different power balances. But I mean, it was in a way, it was very, a very very organic way of doing it because you had the guilds, which had specific areas in the city and specific amounts of political power based on whatever wealth they were bringing to the table. And then you had merchant princes, um, like Zurich had a high, uh, Bern had a high, um, high amount of uh, merchant princes, Konstaffler, as did Zurich, and the Konstaffler, which comes, it comes from cons- same root as cons- constable, were kind of like merchant princes or gentrified nobles who had been brought, been allowed to stay within the city in return for kind of making sure that they got tamed um compared to the and this is this is something that you know you see in italy with the guelphs and the ghibellines right you know where where like the the outside you you, anybody who stayed within the city kind of had to toe the party line even if they were nobility um and so then you had these kind of like power uh conglomerates inside the cities and they would field troops within these uh, social organizations that they already fought in. Um, uh, uh, my father actually did an interesting paper on the Bolognese Societas Armatis in the 13th century, which is kind of interesting, on the, the societies, and which petered out mostly by the oh, 15th yeah. century. Yeah, um, paper. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting on how, like, how much of it is basically, no, you can't have a coup. Um, but well, that's the problem, right? You give people arms and you give them an incentive to defend their city, and they they start fighting with each other. Yes, yes. I mean that was that was actually one thing that was, that the that the Germans were re- pretty good at um, in creating these kind of power balances and realizing that they were in a really precarious position and needed to kind of work together. But um, so I. The I think one of the interesting things about what what they do, what they do with the guilds is because people are fighting in their civilian power structures. A lot of the military concerns that you have from basic training of like just sorting out who's a good leader, who's an idiot, who shows up on time, you know, who who you know, understanding who you can rely on, who you can't, and people's personalities and what the power structures are going to be is already sorted out. You know, you're going into in you're going into warfare already knowing who's kind of sorted out, who's reliable as a as a leader and who can deliver. You know, and there's that trust there, um, and there's a lot of cases of of, of quite. Um, I think that's one reason why you sometimes see these very advanced maneuvers and very advanced tactics going on. Like you have. There's several um, references to using smoke screens to cover movement. Um, there's the all the Hussite war wagon um, strategies, which like they're described in the Kriegsbuch von Zelnek as basically playing snake with ca- with um, with uh, 
lines of uh, Hussite war wagons with cannons in them just circling people. Um, so like it's often seen the Hussite war wagons as just being a static thing, but this describe the Zelnek describes them as being active and actually maneuvering in entire like lines with these things for circling maneuvers and flanking maneuvers and all that stuff. So you see some quite advanced stuff going on on a kind of like a command and control level, which I think speaks to they were doing something. Because you, you don't get that stuff by by accident. You you have to practice that stuff. Yeah. But if you are going into com- into a, a combat with already established power structures and command structures that have been tested already on a daily basis through just operating as a guild, operating as a business, op- you know all the pressures and the issues that come up and get ironed out as a functioning business. The only problem is that um, on if you're if you're wanting to centralize government and and monopolize um, force, um, and you have these guilds that can literally out of the drop of a hat pick up weapons and become an effective fighting force, they're really hard to bully. Right. Yeah. They have a they have a, a social buy-in that kind of holds the whole unit together. So they have an intrinsic reason to not flee because then they would lose their social standing in their in their group, which yeah. is essentially the difference between life or death in that time. Exactly, yeah. you know, and and, and there's um, there's a lot of evidence for basically, you know, the way you got you raised you got higher inside the political um, stratus uh, uh, state political kind of uh, structures of of a free city was by proving you could handle jobs and things and one of the best ways to do it was you know handling military um contracts or handling the uh handling the the the, the um the training etc you see it even in machiavelli how he kind of he handles this and he gets given that and then he takes this responsibility and that responsibility right. and he fucks some of them up he does well on some of the other ones you know that's how you find where you are going to be, basically. When you start fucking up, that's like, okay, well, that that that's how much we can trust you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty interesting, right? Um, I think it, it was. I think Charles V ended up having to go to the uh, the crossbow guilds, and like he had uh, he had brought a whole bunch of Burgundians to the to his early court when he was a young man, and he surrounded himself with uh, Burgundians and Spaniards. And the Dutch really didn't like that, <laughs> and so yeah, naturally yeah. they don't, <laughs> you know, they don't like a lot of things. But uh, they uh, <laughs> they didn't like that in particular, <laughs> and uh, and so he tried to kind of make peace because you know they they'd revolted uh, multiple times, and so I think he had actually gone into a crossbow competition with uh, one of the crossbow guilds. Um, it's pretty interesting, uh, but it it is how it's fascinating how they can wield power like that. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> it, it, it is one of those things where, like, it be, just becomes a very natural thing of once you have this group with a common identity that can wield both military and so uh, m- both military and, and, and political power and that everybody just listens to everybody to what the ta- what the heads say and, and trust them, you, it becomes a very difficult thing, especially because these 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 people are some of them are very wealthy merchants, very well connected 
um, craftsmen with connection, business connections all over Europe. Yeah. You know, they they have a fair amount of leverage they can pull on. Um, and going back to like the you, be, inside the guild, you would have all these different elements of a military. You would have cavalry, heavy infantry, light infantry, all these things that you kind of need to become to be an effective force were inside. If you had those that kind of level of bandwidth. You would uh, in of of income within that guild. You would have access to those things. So you were kind of a a, a complete u- fighting unit. That's interesting. So okay, I I didn't know that. So they were integrated with different weapons. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry, Stephen. I couldn't hear you. Oh, so the guilds were actually big enough that they would basically have their own, I guess what we would call a combined arms kind of unit in and of themselves. So they wouldn't need to combine with other guilds in order to make that happen. Theoretically not. If they have the, if they have the right, because it's, you have, you have kind of like your horizontal organization Mm -hmm. is by income bracket. Sure. Right. And then your vertical organization is by gasse, which is your alley or your guild, right? So if you have enough people, if you span that entire kind of like horizontal gambit of income brackets, then you have everything within, right? Right. Now, there'd be of a course, wide enough disparity in guild incomes to support different kinds of people, yeah. basically. Okay. And, and, and then you also have like different guilds being kind of renowned for creating, kind of like generating... Um, kind of like skill sets like in in Germany a lot of references in, 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 in are to the um, the furriers guild the cutlers guild and there's a lot of also references to butchers guilds being involved in fencing <laughs> they just always keep so coming up all the guys with sharp tools yeah. that involve cutting stuff yeah they <laughs> yeah I mean you know, you you get people. They they're not afraid. They 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 know how to use a knife. They cut right. things apart. Um, it's a it's a high, it's a luxury good, mm-hmm. so high income. Um, they're probably used. They're used to getting, getting cut a little bit themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's they're you know they, so they have money. They know how to use blades. They're used to are used to being around blades. They probably have pretty friendly connections with both the um, the furriers guild and the cutlers guild. Um, and so I think the you know, the, the societal both? aspect of it, what you mentioned there too, is also kind of important too. Like think about a restaurant owner. You know, like if you ever want somebody to just kind of like provide you with a connection, at least. Like, I don't know, maybe in, in, in North Carolina, right? in, in, in American society. Like if I want to if I want to make a connection with somebody knowing a, a, a like a, a restaurant owner of like a fine dining restaurant, they could literally put you in to anybody's circle. Right. Because they know so many different people. They have overlap with so many different people. Right. Because they're right. constantly feeding them. And I, I imagine it would be the same for a butcher providing fresh meat for all the rich families, you know, showing up, <laughs> talking to their household yeah. staff, you know. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. Yeah, make good spies too. Yep, yep. So constantly delivering delivering things. Yeah, so let's talk about crossbows. Um, so 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of your things uh, lately has been uh, looking at small unit cavalry tactics, um, and definitely want to talk about that. But uh, before we talk about like how small units kind of operated, let's talk about the weapons themselves. So, um, you know, we see in the historical chronicle that we're looking at with Guido Rangoni, he kind of, as he's, I he, he kind of, he kicks off everything with a being a part of an upper echelon kind of thing. But as he has to reinvent himself in Venetian forces, he's trying to earn the trust of the Serenissima. He has to take on these roles where a lot of times he's just leading these small cavalry units. Um, and it's usually small cavalry units with crossbows. So what is it like, first of all, to fire a crossbow on horseback? Are we talking about like dragoon style tactics here where you're like dismounting, firing? Are we talking about firing from horseback? Like what kind of, what kind of scenario, um, do you, should we be kind of like visualizing when we're reading through this? So like sources, there's aspects in the sources where you see dragoon style dismounted fire, but most use, mostly you see shooting on horseback and shooting a crossbow on horseback is not a big deal at all. Like oh, it, really? is, it is way easier in, in many ways. The, the physical action of shooting and hitting something is in some ways easier than shooting a bow on horseback. The Mamluks literally have a section in the one of the Mamluk treatises we have of like if if your guy if this if you're if you have a guy who's literally who's too shit to shoot cross shoot a bow on horseback, give him a crossbow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cool. Right. Um, that that sets the hierarchy up nicely. Like, so there, like the the modern archery is in some ways a much more like you can go much farther with it. Mm-hmm. Like it takes a lot more investment, but you can go to a much higher level in a way. Um, mounted crossbow doing stuff. The great thing about a mountain crossbow is you can maintain threat and wait for your shot. Hmm. And okay. what do you mean by um, that? I mean, you can like the big problem with mountain crossbow is is reloading, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And that you can do from the saddle as well. Um, it's just going to take way longer. And you're going to be kind of indisposed for a bit for longer than you would be with a with a bow. Um, so you need to kind of have a way. Like even if you don't like the chronic the the Kranikin Quinn ones, like with that with the small round Kranikins um, that you just put on top, and it's like this disc, and you tighten it by by turning it in a circle. Yeah, that okay. those are described in in the Burgundian sources. As one of the things that you're supposed to have, that's that's pretty simple to use on horseback. You just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, you have the goat's foot one again, which is you, if you can place it and then pull back. If you place it on your saddle horn and then you pull back, okay. it's on done. The, the real, okay. the, I mean, the real or on the horse's neck. The real hard one is when you get into the the stirrup crossbow ones. Those okay. ones are kind of annoying. Um, and I think there's a... I have an, I think in one of my articles I have an illumination when it shows it. But, like, at the canter, you have to kind of lean down 
put the stirrup of the stirrup crossbow in your own kind of in your foot in your stirrup and then kind of lean out over the side and then kind of straight straighten up without bumping the trigger mechanism of the crossbow as you do with your horse okay. as you do it from the gallop if you're doing if, if you're doing it at the if you're doing it at the counter gallop I got this. Like, you can stop and make it easy, but like Pass. Okay. that's that. You know, if you if you want if you're wanting to kind of do it that way, so it's the reloading that's the issue. <clears throat> but crossbows have always been excelled most like a lot at um, delivering like hard stopping shots and also um, delivering kind of. Aim, more aimed shots, sniper style kind yeah. of stuff. And uh, you see in the 13th century, one of the, um, I think it's not Albertus Magnus, maybe, but uh, one, of the, one of the military theor- uh, theorists who's talking about how to deal with the Mongols suggests more crossbows because their crossbow bolts have the capability of, take, of actually bringing down a horse reliably. Interesting. Um, so there's there, what you see in, in in German sources. You see a lot of mounted crossbow in German sources. A lot of references to it. They come up in Teutonic orders. In illuminations, where you see it pictured most is when you see cavalry charging infantry or charging each other. You have in the second rank behind the lancers. You have. Uh, a crossbowman picking up who's like aiming over the shoulder of the of the lancer at who at the um uh at the infantry or the or the other cavalry which cavalry traditionally almost always has had some element of covering fire because mm-hmm. i mean whether it goes back to the roman and ancient tactic of having throwing javelins as you close mm-hmm. or later pistols or um, even like heavy cavalry was usually shooting pistols as they were closing, um, but it's, it's a fairly human thing that comes up. You know, even if you're doing like a kid doing snowball fights and you're like running at another the other kids with snowballs, and you're like, maybe I should have a few snowballs in my hands to throw at the other kids while I'm running at them to keep their heads down. Like it's not really. It's a pretty. Okay, these guys are shooting at me. If I have my own guys shooting at them while I'm closing, maybe I can take some of their sh- guys shooting at me out or create a hole. Um, give them something else to worry about. So something else to worry about because, like, yeah. it's a completely different shot where, you know, uh, even if you're doing something like laser tag or, or a snowball fight, it's a completely different shot where you're having to be worried at getting sh- shot at back rather than just, oh, okay, I have all the time in the world to aim and take my shot however I want. So Jack, was this usually um, great? Was this more of an individual, like you've got you've got a target, you take a shot kind of thing, or was this more volley fire? Was this kind of like a, an early adoption of volley fire, where they would have like, you know, sort of a, a combined barrage, if you will, uh, or, or volleys, I guess. This that <laughs> I wish I could say. Um, this the the problem is. Um, you get you don't have much re- you have references to um some of this stuff in most most chronicles don't go much into 
the light crossbowmen or, or, or the light cavalry elements of a lance. Because in Germany, it, uh, it's, going, it's interesting going into Italy because they, it's already different in Italy, it seems, at this point. But in Germany in the 15th century, you still very much have this idea of the la- integrated lance as a unit. Mm-hmm. So you have the basic cavalry unit for a free city or a, or a um, German nobility is, is called a lance. Mm-hmm. And it consists of one knight, two light lancers, and a mounted crossbowman. And the Kriegsbuch von Zeldeneck, which is one of our kind of like more exact sources on how warfare is waged from the mid 15th century, says that for skirmishes and small actions, you keep this, the lance unit in its form. Right. And then for larger actions, you split the lance into its larger elements, into its base elements, and you use formations of that element. So you have a formation of knights, a formation of formations of light cavalry, and formations of, of um, mounted crossbowmen. So you can use you vertical start... organization for small actions, and then you use horizontal yeah. integration for large actions. Exactly right. Okay. So you have like on a small level, you have like these fire these fire teams that can support each other, um, and like doing skirmishes on horseback with like I've gotten the chance to do it a couple times with guys in armor and guys out of armor, and and we didn't have mounted crossbowmen, but just going as one of the light cavalry guys, what you saw is you have like this very kind of like D and D esque thing going on hmm. where. The, the the heavy cavalry kind of ends up meeting in the middle or becoming very very much a focal point and then you have the light cavalry going around and if you're good you can just zip in and zip out hit someone in the back of the head and then be go- uh, be gone before they notice right yeah. so as the big shiny boys take all the attention you're kind of ganking people from behind um <laughs> And if you can take, you know, but you have to keep out for the other guys. Um, But I I could very much see that happening. Now, I think part of the issue, and you see this a lot in in, in the illuminated sources, especially like Diebold Schilling, but a lot of the other kind of like various German sources, you start to see this kind of idea. You see it in the Wolfeg manuscripts. Um, Another thing that's very interesting for the German sources is German sources, the um, German knights seem to have preferred to travel in lower levels of armor than Burgundians or um, or, or Italians. Um, like, there's interesting examples from the uh, because a, a friend of mine, Louis Forster, does has done a shitload of um, of research on uh, Burgundian stuff. Uh, he has some amazing anecdotes there. But they seem to be focused much more on um, they're already, by the second half of the 15th century, splitting their lances um, for basic operations into elements. So you have more companies of mounted archers or crossbowmen who are working as companies, similar to how you see it now with the, with the Venetians. Um, and the knights are staying more heavily armored. There's an... Ex- and, excellent example of a cavalry skirmish that's described um, actually with um, uh, Wilvold von Schaumberg who was the 
son of the author of um, uh, the German man, man, uh, manuscript. Caddister calls it the Flower of Battle. Um, Ludwig von Eib. Um, Ludwig, he was actually the son-in-law of Ludwig von Eib, and Ludwig von Eib wrote a biography based on his exper- on his son-in-law's experiences, and there's a br- beautiful um, account of a cavalry skirmish where the Germans are first taken off guard and they can't get out to the, get to the French because the French are more heavily armored and the Germans aren't wearing all their armor for the operation. And Wilbur uh, von Schaumburg tells them to stab the horses um, and starts directing their fencing from from the bat, from uh, for his guys and kind of coaching them. And they end up winning, winning the fight. Um, and he also says very clearly, and and in in this, this was of what, one of the small battles where nobody can watch each other's back, and there are no ranks, which are the most, which is the most glorious form of cavalry combat, because everyone is is uh, for himself and must rely on their own skill, um, which is an in, which was an interesting statement to find, because you do find this idea that even comes, you see it in. Um, in Bayard, of like the, the large cavalry actions aren't really that interesting for him, and then you get these tiny things that that he talks about, and he like he nerds out about like this yeah. tiny little action, but it's like yeah. Ravenna. That's three lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, right. I, I charged. I took a banner. It wasn't nice. Yeah, everything <laughs> everything around Padua is just like his little like small little affairs with Malvetti, and he's just like <laughs> he loves his little rivalry with Malvetti. You know, it's like, great. but like you know, that, yeah, like you know, but you you get that even in modern Hema, like yeah, yeah, that the finals were, were were messy and and and, and you know adrenaline fueled and and hateful. But I had this really nice match in the pool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, no. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it also goes to, down to like what cavalry's job at this point is um, not re- is so much more about communications and reconnaissance. I think it's so easy nowadays to in the days of mobile phones where I'm just having this interview with you across the Atlantic to forget that this is a time period where if your scouts go out find the enemy and then get murked by the other guy's scouts you don't know where the enemy is right right and you they could be literally around a bend you could have an entire army literally around a bend speaking of Malvetti their cavalry <laughs> poor francesco you know, gonzaga if, if that, yeah if their cavalry is better than yours you're never going to know about it right right you're never going to know where the food is you're never going to know where the water is you're never going to know where the enemy is you're you're never gonna. If your messenger rider is supposed to go get help, and they never get get where they're supposed to go, no help is ever coming. Right. Yeah. You know. So psychologically, that would just be a lot more draining. Like you have to be in just a generally much more paranoid state than you would be running a battlefield now. Exactly. Knowledge and surveillance and all that stuff. Exactly. Like, there's that kind of that 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 feeling of like well, what's going on. I mean, the modern pentathlon comes from that. You know, the idea that you know, if you have to go do a dis be a dispatch rider, 
you have to be able to ride your ride your way out of a situation, fight your way out of a situation, shoot your way out of a situation, run if your horse gets shot, run and deliver the message, or swim and deliver the message. You know that's and there's examples of that from that's the great. Napoleonic yeah. period. Um, so I think I think that's cavalry comes back so much more to that. You know of you need to have. Um, you, that, that's what cavalry is much more about in this period that kind of skirmishing and eyes and ears aspect right. or blinding your opponent yeah uh, that's that's actually that's pretty interesting right like I mean intelligence um, is always such a key aspect to you know conducive uh, operations and things like that and uh, to kind of see that with uh, you know I think we, we see that a little bit with the, what happened with Faina and um and Annabali Bentavolio, don't we? Like out towards uh, yeah. around Rusi when he gets yeah, kind of caught off guard, or, or yeah, he has to like ride through or something like that. To yeah, Vaina's got a bunch of mounted crossbowmen that he surrounds uh, Hannibal Bentavolio's guys with, trying to capture Hannibal Bentavolio because he's worth four thousand ducats, and uh, Hannibal Bentavolio cuts his way through apparently. And but he gets he shot in the back. Yeah. But he does get shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what kind of what kind of penetration power so, do we usually talk about when we think about something like a, a crossbow? Um, a regular bow? How long is a piece of string? Um, the, the, <laughs> the, the piece of string. <laughs> the problem is. Like, I get it. <laughs> you know, the problem is at this point that you have. I mean, there's there's multiple problems. First off, there we there the actual. Material reconstruction of laminated crossbow prods is really behind the curve. There's only a couple guys who are really like getting to the point of being able to replicate some of the um, source mentioned areas, uh, kind of types. And then there's also the quit. So the material research isn't that solid. Um, and then there's the aspect of like there's all references to different levels of strength of mounted cross, uh, crossbows being carried in the Burgundian um, lances. Like, there's one that's a lighter one, and one that's one of those crossbow, one of those crank ones, um, which probably would have had significant stopping power. And then you have the ones that you can almost pull back by hand or by, you know, by the stirrup. By the stirrup. Um... So you'd you, you have to, like, and then a lot of time muster rules say, uh, make sure the troops have a good crossbow for their mounted crossbowmen. And it's like, thanks? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to equip them with shit crossbows, but now that you mentioned it. <laughs> Interesting. So um, one of the questions I had, there's a, a source out there on academia.edu, I think, that talks about, uh, Florentine organization for mm. wars in the Renaissance, and one of the things that uh, struck me about there is the the Florentines are constantly asking for four different kinds of crossbow bolts. Why would you have different kinds of crossbow bolts, and why would why would that be an issue? Well, I mean that that's actually uh, a source that I'd love. I don't think I've found that one, so I'd, I'd love to have a look at it. But yeah. what you find in German sources, and you see references to also in like Belly Fortis styles, is, di is different heads, and you have 
um, references also to whistling heads that create a whistle as they go around, which are supposed to scare opponents or horses or be used for signals. You have, you know, you have your broad-bladed heads, which would create more, you know, laceration damage. You have heavier heads or heavier bolts that would create that to create more kind of punch. Um, you have lighter flight heads, like you uh, lighter bolts that have that are more for distance and flight. Um, you have references to a few different kinds that you might want to use. Um, you might also have, um, in, in the English longbows also have references to, and I think there's a couple references to it in some of the German sources of, uh, case-hardened heads for pro- projectiles. Right? So, I mean, case-hardened like, so head. Right, so if you want, if you want, if you want to be punching through armor, you need something that's a little bit more, that's got more, got a, a different temper to it. But if you're shooting at light troop, that those are much more expensive to produce. So maybe you need, you want to keep those separate for har- more heavily armored troops. There's a lot of details like this that you find that are that that's that that's interesting to to use, um, and. You get a lot more of that kind of in, in this. I mean, and then also you have it, it makes it all. Seeing those differences also kind of drives home to me always how much kind of like specialized and how how much knowledge there must have been going in on a fairly right. detailed level. I mean, yeah, it would yeah. be kind of it, if you think of like it's almost you, you see this and you realize that in a lot of ways, warfare after the Renaissance took three steps back. Like yeah, that's right. You need powder. You need a ball, and you need a musket or a, a, a bayonet, or you need a pike. Whatever. Well, they, you know, well, they like, simplified oh. things. You know, I mean, you could you could look at it in either direction, right? Like sometimes simplicity is is speed and efficiency. So. Well, I mean, I don't see them using like smoke screens or integrated fire teams, or you know. A, lo- a lot of these things kind of start disappearing, and I do wonder whether part of it has to do with the fact that now that you're having to um, create these officer corps separately and, and, and recruit standing armies instead of using civilian organizations because you're afraid of using letting civilian organizations like no noble pri- the private you don't want to use like these privatized armies from the free cities or the nobility which is nobility is just a privatized army in a way that you draw on because politically you don't want them to have be able to tell you to tell you no or coup or have a coup yeah. um so now you you have to recon- redo it build everything from zero and that's a lot harder um but yeah no i, I I, 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 yeah, there's also an argument that it's simplifying, but I, I always find it interesting that you don't really see integrated fire teams like this popping up, real, uh, like you do the germ, the the cavalry lances, until like World War Two, like because you have different yeah. specialists in a in a unit, right, right. working together. Um, but I, there's, I, I wonder whether the move away from it also had to do with quality control um because decrease the skill of the individual 
And so you start to have more, because you're relying more on a common force, right? Like, it's almost like that, that's Machiavelli's argument of, of having a militia, right? Like, that's why he wanted, that's why he focused so much on uh, Vegetius and, and kind of like, the whole idea yeah. was to simplify things where you could basically hand everybody the same level of equipment, give them the same standard of training, and rely on them to be just as effective. Whereas, like, if you think about, like, today's special forces, you're thinking about highly skilled, highly trained individuals who basically become a master of a certain skill and a master of like being able to integrate within like a five to six person group, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And like you have, I mean, you have this, the, the, the free city, you know, higher burgers were got super into the idea of basically being nobility also because they needed to have the same military skills i think you know like yeah. you had to walk in you know 15th century germany you you had to walk the walk as well as talk the talk you know if the if you you could get called on your shit and you were fighting off uh, robber barons and you needed to have the skills and so the emulation of those kind of you had um, our societies of um, the round table, you had all these things going on and they saw them and they had to also um, in order to assume political autonomy you have to be second estate you have to be nobility Like that that's just how the, the, the logic of it worked who has, who has the right to, to govern the second estate, the warrior class well, if we're going to self-govern we better be the warriors, you know Mm-hmm. Why? What gives you the right? Well, we're a warrior class just like you. We're just we just live in in cities, and you live outside, and we can kick your ass. Yeah. So well, I mean, do you think that's that's kind of it, right? Like, I mean, it's probably the burn the 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 cantons, the the free cities uh, forming, you know, uh, well formed militias. Like, you know, we see um, the the Swiss. Um, we've got the lands connects. We have. Um, you know, down in Italy, we've got like the um, the Brissigalian infantry. We've got the Bolognese infantry yeah. uh, that had you know some some level of reputation. Um, even the the Spanish uh, were able to kind of like create these. Uh, well, actually, I mean, well, that's that's a different story because there is some integration of like combined arms there, um, which is interesting. Yeah, but there right? is. The Spanish is like different, but it's combined arms not on a unit on like in, in an integrated unit, but different units in doing combined arms. Right. Yeah. 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 Like they're the so companies of different types of men. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, like, tercio. Yeah. The 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 the, the, well, the, the tercio. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, yeah, Sam did turn out a lot of int- interesting information like that, and they're also using the cross crossbow guilds to do it and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you already have a lot more already starting in the um, uh, in the 13th century. You have a lot more organize formal organization in Spain around warfare because it's a lot more centralized as a state already right. compared to like northern Germany. Um, yeah, which is, but I, I think. Sense. I think for me, I think the the interesting thing is I, you could either look at the, the this this burgeoning this I, the the fact that it, the Italians are much are splitting um, lances into their different elements mm-hmm. on a couple of levels. I think one thing that's happening in the Italian wars is you have 
a shift of focus that happens in the 16th century uh, 16th century towards field battles that is not a thing really before then you start seeing it like you have in the space of 30 years in the Italian wars as many field battles as you have in Germany in like the last 150 right like yeah it's not a it's a much different landscape and like knightly cavalry was always wanted to do field battles because everybody wanted to be in on it and say they'd done it because it happened yeah. so rarely but the organization and if you look just look at it on a, on a purely doctrinal and organizational level they were not well suited to it like an integrated fire t- uh, unit that you then split up into its own into elements and then give completely new commanders and they've never worked before together before and then you're going to try and do this thing that you've never done before that works completely differently than a skirmish because mo- moving large amounts of cavalry and maneuvering large amounts of cavalry is inherently different than using moving small groups of cavalry like humans are way better at moving in formation than horses are just the fact that humans are basically a circle and horses are a rectangle oh horses are worse than humans well i don't know that because i thought we're pretty bad at moving in formation oh no horses <laughs> hor- like I mean, okay just just think of the fact that a horse is basically you know uh, a a rectangle that is like six foot by two and a half to three foot got it like how are you going to do an about face with when you're in a in a ten by ten Got it. formation Got it. of that? That that's that's not you know, and it's not not even your own feet you're doing it with, you know. Like if you're doing with pikes, if you raise pikes and then go about face, and everybody is reasonably trained, it works on a geometrical level. Like you, there's no way you can do an about face with a ten by ten rank of horses in sh- when they're shoulder by shoulder. And it with and it working, right? They unless wheel. you so, unless you can really break up the 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 formation and you have like a horse's a horse sized circle around each person, then then it's doable. But um, it, it, the the logistics of moving in formation are much much different for cavalry. Um, Jack, have you come across in your research any any mention and instances of how they coordinated on the battlefield. Like, I mean, how did they coordinate communication on in amongst and amidst the chaos of a battlefield? Like, was it usually were there were there runners going between different units um, to kind of like coordinate combined arms? Uh, were there signal flags? Were there sort of different uh, elements that were specialized for that sort of thing? How was that usually uh, done? I mean, so okay, so so to be clear, when we say battlefield, we're talking about kind of like your 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 classic Hollywood field battle Hollywood idea, battle, yeah. Ravenna or something like that, yeah, rather Ravenna. than a spread out engagement. Okay, so um, Machiavelli has some stuff on it. Like in Machiavelli's ideal battle, he has communications with flags and instruments, and there's a lot of re- uh, there's a lot of um, references to instruments being used and stuff but i think when you look like i think this is something that is starting to come in at this point and people are starting to figure it out using more advanced 
methods of communication, but I think if you go back to like the fifth. 14th century, this is one of the reasons why when you start getting into larger field battles, people really suck. Because... <laughs> there's just no talking. Yeah, because there's, there's a, mean, a lack of communication overall. I mean, it, just just think about it. If, if you're in a... If your company or whatever your, your job is, you're used to working in, like, you know, a small team or, you know, a, you know, and on a small project where the team just knows every, you know, you're, you're a few plumbers, you're doing a house and then you're moving on to another house. And then all of a sudden you're working on like this massive gigantic stadium right? with hundreds, with thousands of feet of pipe that you have to be laid and coordinate with concrete layers and this and that. And just the, the just the corporate level of communication that you need becomes like yeah. you know there's so it's much daunting. more that yeah. goes in and then yeah and Different. then oh well this pump that we this pump that we use for this for the bathroom for one bathroom doesn't pump it up 10 stories high or whatever you know you, there's things that sometimes things that don't scale like um in small in small groups cavalry can charge infantry and break a line like if it's a 10 if it's like Three, two or three people deep, a horse can see its way through that and go just like barge through. That's not an issue. Um, but when you get to ten man deep, like there's just the mass, and then all of a sudden you can't push your way through in the same way, and then you get bogged down, and then you can't use speed to defend. You know, there's yeah. a lot of things that just don't scale. Yeah. Um, and then you have the individual like, oh, okay. constraints too, right, Jack? I mean, you've got yeah. you think about somebody in armor, you can't hear when you put a helmet on, you can't see, right? I mean, you might you you probably put your visor up. I mean, we've got lots of anecdotes of of these guys, you know, li- basically going into battle lifting a visor, or even Pietro Monti just saying screw the visor altogether, right? Um, yeah, just kind of going in visorless because you know he's he's Monti and he's badass, but. Um, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of uh, a lot of like deeper constraints that really kind of limit communication and the ability to coordinate um, and kind of create a lot of this chaos. Um, you know. Yeah, and just, I, I think that, I mean there, there, there's there's things that like there's also a lot of references to forming around banners and stuff. But I think there may that there was there's a lot more probably going on. I think in in, in how the things work together and how you specialized and how you like I, I could definitely see like even doing uh, experiments with guys on foot and guys in armor how having light troops around guys in in heavy armor can help kind of shore up the weaknesses and like you can let the guy in armor take the brunt and the light guys kind of guard the flanks and help them be more effective and keep guys off of the guy in armor so that he can't get dragged down and all those kind of things I can definitely see there's definitely references to mounted crossbowmen being used as messengers um, and stuff like that it cut out yeah can you hear me can you hear me Jack we missed what you were saying because I think your connection was kind of dropping there on us Um, do you mind repeating that um was, yeah, we can hear you I now. I was saying, like, yep. even if you're doing yeah. stuff, even if you're doing stuff in in uh, on foot, you with guys in armor and guys in with without the guys without armor can really support the guy in armor, give them 
help keep people off of them and give them visibility and stuff like that and the guy in armor can kind of keep take the brunt of the for the force and kind of so i think there was probably some stuff going on there that we that we that's hard to say but you do run into the issue that um if these people do like if you're doing writing chronicles the chronicles either tend to be pretty dry of like very right. you know this is the facts of what happened they don't go into much detail or they tend to focus on um, someone like Bayard or, or a noble, right? Right. And if you have a rich guy who's coming to play and he's the star of the show, how much does he want to talk about, you know, really what I, you know, if I didn't have these other guys keeping me <laughs> up and running, I this, you know... Like, especially given class consciousness at the time, I mean, Bayard is, I, I think Bayard's, you know, oh, there are no, there's nobody in the French army who isn't, who isn't a, a, a gentleman was just a very clever out to avoid a suicide mission because you, you also have Montluc, he was probably kicking Montluc under the table to tell him to shut up because Montluc <laughs> definitely would have gone in. Um... And he definitely wasn't considered. Anyway, he, he 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 says he wasn't considered a gentleman, um, but like I think one of the reasons you have this separation in is because in the large battles you, you you want to have that kind of separation already. People already acting in those units a and b it, on that kind of level you level of quality control. If you are hiring mounted crossbowmen and you're saying, look, you know. Rather than you guys hiring your lances, you know what? You you guys are such gr great heavy cavalry. We're just going to put you guys together and do your heavy cavalry thing and keep you back for the battle. You just pay us what you would have paid your light ca your your crossbowmen. We'll organize everything for you. Then you have direct control of the quality of the mounted crossbowmen that come in, because the biggest issue that you like the, I mean, the two the second issue besides communications that is like unfathomable from a modern military standpoint is you don't have any control of the recruitment of these people or their quality. Right. Yeah. You know, like, uh, some some guy shows up um, with his lance and, you know, like, and one of his guys can't ride. He's, you know, his horse is, the, the guy's armor is, you know, shit. It doesn't fit him because uh, he's gained 20 pounds, 20 pounds since he, he ordered it. Um, you know the the other the, one of the other light lancers is is uh the son of a friend he's doing a, a a favor to and you're like they can what you know they're coming into camp and one of them already falls off their horse you can't do anything about this right you just have them now right right you can't fire them they're he hired them you can't fire him he's a he's he's one of your red you know he he's a feudal vassal you know. You have no direct control over this. Um, like from from in a modern military, you'd like you just muster them out or you know reassign them, um, but you don't have any control of your personnel um, unless you're paying them directly in, in, in a Renaissance setting. So I think this yeah. was part of the reason why. Uh, so it makes sense. I, yeah. I think in, in Germany, I have a vague feeling that you have this underclass of like light cavalry that you add to either whether it's free cities or or or, or, or um, 
or feudal no nobility that you have this light, light cavalry class that you add underneath to support people. And they're like, in, even in modern polo, you have this idea of the padron and then the hired players. And this is a super common thing in the horse world since forever of like, you have the wealthy owner who may not be that strong. And then you find in, find a whole bunch of people who are really good riders who maybe don't come from that social class who are brought in as experts who are supposed to make the rich guy look good. Right. Okay. Yeah, we so, know lots um, of them, right? We've we've got a whole list of them: Sassatello, Ramazzotto, You know, like we've we've got we've got all of our guys that are just like, you know, the guys that always show up. It's it's the guys. They they are the guys. They're the ones who are always kind of perpetrating this violence. So, um, you know, do we like, want to yeah, talk exactly. about those scenarios? I just wanted to keep an eye on time here. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to run through some of the scenarios there, uh, Stephen? Yeah. Did you want to go? Did you have a chance to read those yet, Jack? Um, I had a I had a look at them. Yeah. Okay, because uh, we brought it. So a couple things kind of came up in relation to them, and we we mentioned Bayard. Although I guess we'll wait for the train to go there. All right. So um, so we've been talking about the siege of Padua a little bit. We've been talking around that, and you know Guido Rangoni actually was known by the Venetians for recruiting high-quality men in his companies, right? So, again, like you were saying, when you pay them, you can actually enforce some quality control, right? Okay, so are you there? Yep, I'm there. Okay, cool. All right, so uh, the first one we have are the mounted crossbowmen at the Siege of Padua. Uh, so for the famous condottieri Guido Rangoni, the Siege of Padua was where he would start making headlines. There he would command a large company of mounted crossbowmen, some 200 strong. The Siege of Padua in 1509 would be notable for many things, but perhaps most famous for the massive cannons that the German emperor brought to bash apart the walls of the city. One such cannon was known as the wake-up call. This monstrosity of a gun fired a stone projectile two feet in diameter, some 1,500 feet per second. When it went off, the wake-up call was so loud that the ponderous thump of its report could arouse people from their slumber 20 miles away. The brick walls of Padua could hardly resist such a pounding. To keep the enemy from emplacing it, Guido Rangoni had orders to intercept the cannon on its way to the city, for the gun had to be dragged by teams of slow-moving oxen. The Germans and their French allies had not been born yesterday, though. They knew what attempting target cannons like the wake-up call made for Venetian light cavalry. So they provided them with a strong escort containing French men-at-arms, and unlike the Venetian, whose mounted crossbowmen served in separate companies, like we've been talking about, uh, the French kept their mounted crossbowmen together with their men-at-arms. So we have a, a situation where Guido Rangoni has a 200 uh, mounted crossbowmen, and how if you were in command of a company of mounted crossbowmen and you had to attack a mixed group of, uh, you know, French lances, how might you go about that? I mean, well, you, you, you would probably want to, uh, if they were already separated, you'd probably want to get them to either attack while they're separated and get out. Like, you're, the main objective is to get a hold of this gun, the wake-up call, Right. So right. you need to start with work back. How do you get a hold of that gun? Yeah, you, you need to, you'd probably have incendiaries of some kind or something that you would be attempting to get a hold of. Um, is that on my, is the rushing on my end or your end? 
Uh, I don't know. Let me mute myself. Uh, it's probably me. Yeah, it's not me. Oh, stopped. All right. Yeah, it was jo- Joshua. Uh, no worries. Sorry. Sorry. I just my um the uh anyway the um you you it depends on everything depends on 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 terrain and stuff but you'd probably want to deliver a a a um a, vo- a volley as you come in or do a distraction to draw them away from the objective and then go in and destroy it as soon as possible but if you if you end up getting in close with two and you don't have heavy cavalry support for yourself to hide behind and distract the heavy cavalry right you're going to be screwed um you have the what's showed in Talhofer of the the fleeing shot where you're shooting backwards with the crossbow at people chasing you and there's descriptions of that happening in battles in Germany of ca- crossbowmen uh in in a unit a separated unit um drawing away heavy cavalry so you could you might want to first um distract and draw away the heavy cavalry and then uh go in with a second group to attack the objective um and and get get to it but yeah you you probably your best bet is to somehow draw off the uh the heavy cavalry maybe if you have some infantry that you can smuggle out as well draw them into uh uh, infantry ambush, tie them up, and then circle back for the objective. But it's it's gonna be a it's gonna be a tricky one. And it all and it all again depends on on uh, terrain, which is which is always the king when it comes to these things. Right, right, okay. So yeah, and it, it and apparently the French were not easily distracted from their job of protecting the cannon. So that's kind of what you're relying on is them to overlook their main job of protecting the gun and become overly concerned with trying to catch you, right? Yeah, I think that's the you'd have to use if you use if you're trying to get a static objective with a for against a force that's really good at a at a stand up fight um compared to you you'd either have to really harass them until they until they're forced to leave or draw them away. Okay. Uh, and if they have if they have significant army support from with in farm of infantry and gunners if you harass them they're just going to eventually bring up arquebusiers and shoot you off you know drive you off that way. So you're gonna have to, you'd have to do something quick, right? Okay. So I guess that the the French didn't buy the bait, and the Germans were able, or the French were able to get the wake up call, along with other cannons to uh, the walls of Padua. Um, so that was kind of bad for the Venetians. Um, now while the while the guns were banging away on the walls of Padua, the engineers inside the city. Uh, did their work to mitigate the damage that was done. They did a surprisingly good job. This is sort of a a revolutionary time in fortresses. Um, And in a situation like this, Guido Rangoni and his light cavalry changed jobs from going after cannons um, to going after supplies in the countryside. Uh, What kinds of supplies do you think they would really be focusing on? I mean, like again, the 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 cannon one is an excellent exa- is an excellent example of how cavalry, you know, is is best used at this time period and in, um, harassing uh, artillery and preventing stuff. Even if you can just draw uh, enemy forces away from the actual siege, but yeah, if you can also gather, um, I mean, I th- I I think I remember where this one is going, but it, on a general level, if you can. Uh, prevent communications uh, or de- remove fodder for the enemy horses, 
um, remove logistical support, supplies, stop them from foraging. The the city, people forget, is the city at least has had the chance to stockpile food. Right. The um, the besieging army has is now sitting in a landscape that has been stripped of food by the city, and probably has to bring either scrounge it up or bring it in. So if you can attack, harass supply lines, bringing in food as cavalry in the back lines, then you're then you're going to be grand. Or if you can bring in more supplies, smuggle in supplies via your mobility. Okay. All right. Cool. So now, and the, so the fodder would be kind of a big issue for a, an army, right? Because they could destroy all the hay. Um, so you pretty much could only get what you could graze out of the fields. Yeah, you know, it, it, depending on the time of year, they may not may not even be any grass or hay left. Especially in like if it's Italy in August, the 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 a lot of the good fodder may have been burnt away already. Oh yes, yeah, so they probably set fire to all the fields around, so there wasn't anything but a stubble for the the horses. I mean, like even even without that, like if you get if you get into like really high summer, uh-huh. right. And it's been it's a dry summer. Um, you can a lot of the nutritional value will le- will go, um, okay. and then you have to graze them on a much larger area. And then, as horses are sp- spread out in a larger area for to so that they can get the fodder they need, or you spread out troops to make hay out of the fodder, and you'll need more of it. You are then dispersing troops. Dispersed troops become very Great targets. Uh, great targets. <laughs> right. Okay. So this is the whole foraging battle that well, I guess we'll look at. It probably also comes up in the winter later on. So uh, it looked like um, the thing that had the most impact is that Guido uh, was going out and cutting off supplies of wine to the uh, the army. And the French were very particular about the wine they drank. They, they the, the nobles were not content to drink whatever, you know, rot gut they could happen to pull out of Italian cellars, but insisted on the good stuff. Really? Um, so that the seems French? to have undermined. Yeah, I know. Shocking, is... right? Shocking. Yeah, okay. This is it, making absolutely no effort to uh, to um, uh, reduce harmful stereotypes. <laughs> We're not important enough to do that. <laughs> well, I was, I was just talking about their nobles who were complaining in Bayard, if Bayard is to believe that they were right. complaining a great deal about the shortage of good wine in the uh, the French camp. I mean, Jean Reed does talk about when he was in in uh, in NATO in the 80s station in Germany that when they would do operations with the French army, that the French army would come out with. With chef cooked meals and white white tablecloths right. in the field, so I, I... we all have, we all have our little things, you know. Um, cool. All right. Um, should we? I guess let's move on to the next one. We don't really need to talk about the cool. Well, there's that that really. Cool I mean, the the the, the 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 raid on bringing in the gold is absolutely amazing. It's it's all straight right. out of Kelly's Heroes. Right, I mean, right. we'll do that. We'll do that raid. Then that one is pretty fun. I mean, I just, just, just on a, like, yes, this is, this is this, a lot of the stuff when you, the kind of stuff that you start seeing cavalry end up being used for. And this is where like a straight, straight up, um, mounted crossbow unit really would excel as well in that you're completely based on light cavalry. And it's not that heavy cavalry is like 
completely ponderous and unmaneuverable. It's just if you give like ten guys a thirty kg backpack and right. give ten guys a ten, you know, and also for heavy cavalry, a lot of the the way I mean, horses have to be trained. You know, war horses are physically conditioned as well in the same way human athletes are, and you have the same trade offs you have in human athletes, like. Uh, endurance versus sprint speed, etc. Right, exactly. You know, power and stuff like that. And heavy cavalry horses that seem to have been really focused on sprint speed and also these really powerful airs above the ground and those kind of right. things. Whereas lighter cavalry, they seem to have more max fo- focus on max speed and endurance. And also, you just like when you have a ho- my horse is uh, even we do more Norman stuff because we're in Ireland, but. When I'm wearing like you know a full suit of uh, mail or even just the heavier hauberk, and uh, my partner she's riding a, a mare that's usually significantly slower than my horse. When I put on the hauberk, it's another twenty kg, and her horse is uh, her horse uh, outruns mine um, fairly easily at that point. Um, so it's just like, you know, adding a little bit of weight to a runner does make a difference over a longer Certainly. stretch. So light cavalry can definitely outspeed heavier cavalry by just that, you know, that game of gaining and in, gaining inches, you know, which, which will make a difference long term, especially if you can just be peppering people and driving them off with crossbow bolts as you're running away. You're just trying to tire them out so that you can get away. So you kind of can play the endurance game. Yeah, you know, and and if you're if you're trying to run a blockade, that's a or you know or lose it attackers. That's a you know being able to shoot out their horses out from under them and being able to outpace them over time is is a really good way of doing it. Cool. Should I uh, read read in that story then, so that they actually know what we're talking? Our audience will know what we're talking about. They need yeah, to watch. I see. Go for I, it. I, I, listen to all the podcasts but no go ahead okay it's i think it's pretty short here let's see all right so while the german infantry the lance connects could get by on whatever wine or beer they could lay their hands on the french cavalry were quickly demoralized at the absence of good wine in the camp but the venetians had their own problems with morale inside padua to boost spirits in padua venice put together a small fortune in gold to send to the garrison But raising the gold was the easy part. The real challenge was getting it past the ring of French and German troops surrounding the city. They gave this mission to Lucius Malvezzi, Guido Rangoni's boss. First, the mounted crossbowmen had to burst from the gates of the city and force their way through the enemy's entrenchments, which is something they did regularly. Then Guido rode out to meet the group of Venetian officials and their heavily laden mule train. Then this whole group headed back into Padua. Unfortunately for the Venetians, a spy in their midst had told the French of the great quantity of gold that was coming for the city, gold that would be fair loot to any man who captured it. Word spread quickly through the French camp, and any man with a horse quickly went after the Venetian group with the mule train. Guido fought off the ones that came in in dribs and drabs, but when a powerful company under the command of the French knight Bayard came along, the Venetians were forced to leave the mule train behind and make a dash for the city. The French let them go as all minds were now upon the loot. And so we can imagine their consternation when they actually captured the mule train only to find the animals were heavily laden with bags of sand. 
The actual gold had been in the bags of the Venetian officials that Guido Rangoni had met. The gold that the mounted crossbowmen had got back into Padua was enough to raise the spirits of the garrison. The spirits of the French, disappointed in their pursuit of gold and suffering from a want of good wine, were just as dejected. And so a few days later, the French and the Germans gave up on taking Padua and raised the siege. Cool. So, like, yeah, Kelly's heroes. <laughs> Straight out of TV. Yeah, that's amazing. Then there's there's another interesting one here that I, this, this one always uh, stood out to me, and we don't necessarily need to read all the details, but uh, as soon as the Germans leave the city, Guido Rangoni left Padua with the remnants of his company of mounted crossbowmen, 200 men at all, in all, and they attacked a group of 6,000 German land connects. And what do you think was going on there, Jack? I mean, what you probably had was you've been uh, at this point. You have like experiments with with the idea of caracols and stuff that then get transferred to like the the pistoliers. But you probably had you know lines of um, crossbowmen re- retiring, uh, shooting, and then peeling off, and then going back to reload, and just keeping a a steady flanking force but what i mean what probably also going on it, I, it these people probably had to if this if this was more broken ground you very easily could have been setting up um ambushes to snipe on people columns as they go through broken ground and then get jumping on horses and retiring you could have had people firing and peeling off in, endle- in in kind of endless waves, um, which is, you see in, in, in various manuscripts described. Um, but it probably was small groups and probably in coordinated levels where, you, I mean, what I what seems like would have been the most effective thing to do is Landsknechts would have had their own crossbow forces and guns that you would have want that could have maybe tried to th- show these guys off, but you would have had limited amounts. So you probably would have wanted to split the group into two to get you know pester them in one place until the guns show up on one side and then hit and then pester them on the other side. Else. You know, because right, they're traveling on them, foot. Okay. You know, so or you know trying to split them up, but like a lot of times, I think. You do seem to have a very low level of, uh, of, and dispersed level of command um, of people doing things on, on in small groups, which is kind of interesting. So, how how big these groups making the attacks were is another question. Could it have been, you know, small land sized groups all over, all across the line, doing their own hit and run in in in, uh, in kind of. Um, command you know mission command style uh leadership of just like just make them bleed so that they couldn't really gather their guns in one spot soon enough because if you if you have larger units of of guns you know you have you have 10 unit 10 companies of guns and you have 20 companies of of um these guys you're gonna have to start peeling them off and sending them in places and you can gain local superiority pretty quickly um, and just go where the guns aren't because you, you will want to be avoiding you know, I mean you're still you know a big target on a horse you can go you can you shoot parallel ride past the uh, formations parallel 
and become a harder target, but you still probably wouldn't want to be exposing your big, meaty, fleshy thing to right. large amounts of guns. So it'd be more more of an idea like you're kind of break into small groups and then look for places where you can sort of shoot from some level I mean, cover. I, yeah, it, it could like that. It could have easily been like, oh, look, there's no guns there. Run in, shoot, retreat. It could have been shooting from cover, as you say. It may have even been something as simple as you just stay out of gun range and nobody can break and forage. Nobody can look for a place to sleep. Nobody can look for water. Exhaust. You're just right. literally you know, harassing them. Yeah. Nobody harassing. can, you know, it's like the not touching you, not touching you. Oh, well, if you leave formation uh, to go take a shit, <laughs> you know, then all of a sudden you come into, if you leave formation to come take a shit, then all of a sudden you come into crossbow range, but you, unless you ask like 10, 30 guys with guns to come with you to escort yeah, you to. You gotta take a shit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have a bunch of guys taking a shit, turning into porcupines. Yeah. Right. You know, and, or, you know, just like, I go fill water from a canteen, or like that, it just the, um, even if it's just as simple as shadowing the force and preventing them from even, say, you know, you're creating their own, uh, the, the creating kind of like flankers to explore what, what what's right and left, because if you have a formation going through enemy country and you can't just go left and right a few hundred meters to see if there's an ambush set there, right? and you're now blind... Right. You don't know what's around the corner because you don't, you don't know what's around around the corner, right? So that adds a lot of, and then that 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 shadowing and that feeling of like we can't. What does it do to you mile after mile when you just see those guys, just just there, kind of shadowing you, and knowing at some time you're gonna have to go to sleep, right? Right. And how? And then how? You know they've got. Those crossbows are still going to be there. Are they going to take pot shots at you? Are they going to attack you at the at night? You know, right. it's just you that, and so like much. Did. Yeah, because you lost the siege, and so this is just grinding your nose in it. Yeah, you know, and then there's the, that aspect of like, okay, you're a soldier. You're supposed to trust in your commanders to keep you safe, to make good decisions, to basically keep you know protect you from the power of the enemy. Right. And the enemy is there just going like, your, your commanders can't keep you safe because right. we're here. They can't do anything about this. Are you sure you want to stick with these guys? Right. So then you start thinking, yeah, it'd be nice to get back to Germany. Fuck these Italians. You know, maybe maybe, maybe, that, maybe you know, my my uncle's dairy farm up in the you know in Bavaria is is a little bit isn't so bad after all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these you know these these Stradoiti and hired on German these these hired on uh, you know uh, mounted crossbowmen who could also be for all we know Bavarian. Right. You know. Possibly, yeah. We don't know where these mounted crossbowmen are from. Yeah. Um, a lot of these lance connects are actually from Italy too. So exactly. So like, there's 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 this. We're 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 typifying them nationally, but you know, there's a lot of mix going on here. Um, but I think I mean, even if it was 
the shattering would have been like the most low risk. And then if the cavalry comes, enemy cavalry comes to try and see you off, you just ride away until they get bored. Got it. Shoot them a little bit, and then they go back, and then you pester another part of the infantry and make their life hard and make the, you know... So even if you're not actively harassing them all the time, which would have been risky and you would have maybe gotten losses, even if you're just there kind of being that looming shadow of death, I think it's it's still a worthwhile thing to think about so you know it's not doesn't it's not everything has to be kinetic right it can be just psychological yeah. uh let me get into this winter section because we were talking about bayard and I, I thought we should mention the this whole skirmishing thing that takes place in the winter of uh, 1509 and 1510 which i thought was pretty fun and get jack's thoughts on it um, so the uh, primitive supply apparatus of an early modern army was not equal to the task of providing food from a central authority. Companies had to send out their own foragers to search the countryside for supplies. Attacking and generally harassing these foragers would be a common job for mounted crossbowmen like those under the command of Guido Rangoni. After the siege of Padua, the Venetian army settled into Vicenza for the winter, while the Germans and their French allies settled into Verona about 40 miles away. During the winter, the infantry hunkered down around their fires, but for the commander of a light cavalry company, there never was any rest. The French reported the presence of a particularly skilled commander of light cavalry on the Venetian side, whom we believe to be Guido Rangoni. Admittedly, we're probably a little biased about that. French sources noted this commander harried the foragers, cut off supplies, set ambushes, launched surprise attacks, and in general lent a zest to life during that winter. Verona would have been dull without him. On one occasion, the French captain Bayard, using the foragers as a bait to draw the Venetians, um, <clears throat> sent his lieutenant with a small force to accompany the foragers. He then led a hundred men-at-arms of his own and went into hiding in a small village. But Guido Rangoni, already informed of this ambush by his spies, considered this to be a game for two. He concealed a detachment of 600 crossbowmen in an empty palace close to the French line of march. The game was then ready to begin. A detachment of the enemy, in apparent ignorance, drew near Bayard's hiding place. With great joy, Bayard's lances rode forth, and the Italians took to fleeing. The French galloped after them in hot pursuit. The Italians fled for the country palace where their own companions were waiting. Once the Italians passed the country house, they wheeled to face the French. The crossbowmen swarmed from their ambush, and Bayard's squadron suddenly found itself caught between the two lines. His horse, struck by a crossbow shaft, went down. He quickly threw his arms up and surrendered to Rangoni's men. But now Bayard's lieutenant, hearing the noise from afar, rode up with his own archers and charged to the rescue. The fight went on, four against one, uh, with the advantage to the Italians. At Bayard's command, the French dragged their way back to the high road and began a slow retreat, turning again to charge at an interval of every 200 but outflanked on either side by crossbowmen, the cluster of lances resembled a wild boar worried by dogs. Bayard's second horse also went down in this fighting, and he was once again surrounded. Uh, but so great was the love of the French for their commander that they pierced to the center of the Venetians, remounted him once again, and the retreat continued until they reached the safety of the French camp. Uh, so what do you think about that, Jack? I mean, you got all this, you know, you have a lot of background. What do you, what do you see in that account? I mean, it, it's 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 a something you see like very commonly. With, it's like the most common light cavalry versus heavy cavalry play. You, you, you see it. In, <laughs> okay. You know, you, you see it in in um, you know in the Crusades right up to the uh, you know the Indian Wars, 
Um, hey, big scary dog, you want to chase me? <laughs> okay, got it. You know, and, and then all of a sudden you're surrounded by coyotes, you know. Um, but, like, you get, you know, the, it's that also because one of the hardest you if you've got if you've got you know range troops running away for a horse in a group you know if if you know if they already know their friends are in they that a place is safe and they've got friends there the horse will go there under threat okay. Okay. usually right if it came from that place and that place is safe you can usually trust it to do the natural thing of run away from this large amount of scary people, so you can you can use that and rely on that. Especially if you've got a couple riders on front in front who are on horses that are known leading the way, the rest will follow, and you can focus on just shooting at the people behind you rather than having to steer and shoot at the same time, which is makes things a lot more complicated. Right. Okay. So you can kind of count on the horse to just go this direction and then you can just focus on the shooting part of it right so you know the, 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 this is and, and like if you're doing live stunt shows or, or, or film this is the, you use these kind of tricks as well so like um but yeah you and then of course you go there and then all of a sudden there's a whole bunch the new horses break out of the sides and the ones that are chased are now all of a sudden being charged from the flanks and horses don't like being charged from the flanks. Even a more, even a more dominant horse. If you're doing Rossfechten and you really come at them with energy from the flank, that that's going to get them to often will get them to kind of squirt out or or, or bolt or or at least be a little bit unsettled by the fact that all of a sudden this thing is coming straight at me and is going to t-bone me. Um, okay, so they hate that, huh? Like <laughs> it's not. A, not a great feeling, you know, and if once you've got that kind of like started to get a chink in that control and calmness and that faith in the rider's ability to keep to kind of keep shit together, you can kind of start that's when things can unravel pretty quickly, right? So if you can break that communication and connection between horse and rider, you've just got a very panicky animal and a very worried rider, not a fighting unit. Interesting. Interesting. Right. So a lot of cavalry combat is much more about breaking the the communication or convincing the horse that this is that he, the rider isn't actually under control of the situation. Like I'm trying to destroy the horse's morale. Yeah, you know, like, uh, and it, it, you know, it's something that you try and avoid generally when you're doing Ross Fechten because you want it to be a positive experience for both, for, <laughs> right. for all, for everybody involved. Like you want it to be a fun sparring for the horse, and horses can have fun sparring too. A lot of them do enjoy it, but if the horse starts to think that, like, wait, this is seeming a little bit too much like a real fight, and the other horse might beat me up, and my own guy can't keep me safe. Then you get things start unraveling pretty quickly. Got um, okay. That's, that's um, really interesting, right? And you get moments actually where, like, a horse will—you know—you're both doing the kind of like the the, the 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 charge for the pass, and then one horse just literally nopes out. <laughs> you know, it's that. What does that mean? 
like they could just turn around and run away. <laughs> Seriously, just like I'm gone. <laughs> I'm gone. Nope, I don't like this. Bye. I don't think we can win this one. Right? I'll catch you at the next fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, some horses, and this is where like the light cavalry, heavy cavalry distinction also kind of comes in. You okay. have some horses that just really love that body contact, smashing to other horses. They just enjoy it. They're kind of okay. they're a bit bit brawlers, and there's some who are a bit like you know I, I'm not in for this whole frontal thing, but I, you know what? How about I just dodge around and circle behind and chase? Okay, chase them from behind, insane. right? So you have yeah, like yeah. horses, right? Ho- horses have their own personalities and how they want to approach a fight, right? Um, like some they have their own fencing personalities, like different ones of them, like. Um, and some some of them are technicians, some of them are br- brawlers, some of them are kind of like tacticians. They like there's different ways, and you also have to when you're fencing on horseback, understand your horse and kind of like get the game to work together. So it's it's a lot about teamwork. Um, getting that, and that's why like in some ways people a lot of say oh the better rider will win, but in a lot of ways it's more about like because it's teamwork. It's about getting that to gel. And if the a lot of times better riders do have better trained horses because they spent their time they've they've spent the time training the horse and if they're a good rider the, the the horse will be better trained. But I've also you know you also see sometimes you just get a bloody minded rider and a bloody minded horse and they can kind of get they 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 understand what 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 they both want to do um, and it may not be complicated. Um, <laughs> You know, but yeah. So th- this idea of like you you come in, you do a quick shock, and then just kind of, and it looks like here again they're shooting at the horses to bring the horses down because right. if you're you know if you're light if you're light armed like more lightly armed, fighting a guy with um, more heavily armed, you may not you don't want to be involved in it. And it looks at this point that the, the heavy cross the light crossbowmen aren't playing. They just want to get the job done, and they're shooting at their horses, which you see sometimes in sources described. It's not like the go-to, but it's it's described. Yeah. And you can and, use um, one of those... Cro- oh, go ahead. Sorry. And it could be that they're also maybe just targeting Bayard specifically, because, like, look, if we can get if we can shoot out <laughs> Bayard's horse, that would be really valuable, right. you know... These are all, these people are all obviously paid professionals. They're, right. they're, they're here to make money. Um, ransom. Yeah, and Bayard is a great way of making money. Um, um, so they're, I mean, and of course, it seems like the, the 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 heavy cavalry is able to get their feet under them, and then whenever the heavy cavalry engage with the light cavalry, they they see them off, and this could be anything from, you know, um, them just being much more effective fighters, or to the light cavalrymen themselves going, you know what, I don't want to fight this armored behemoth. <laughs> Yeah. I'll wait. I'll yeah. wait. I'll go reload, I'll shoot shot. the next horse out from the yard, come back, you know, this will this will work out. I, I I'm gonna play the long game here. Or it could have been the, the amount of crossbowman's horse seeing a big scary guy on a big angry horse. Oh right. Going like, you know what? I'm good. We're gonna right. we're gonna you know, we're gonna retreat. Like 
So the horses are, can make tactical decisions here too. Horses are pretty good at immediately assessing whether or not this fight is in their favor or not. They're bullies. Oh, okay. Um, no fair fight for horses. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, isn't that a great idea? Put, yeah, put your, put your valuable uh, political assets that want to go into combat on these really uh, cow- animals that are, have a very clear idea of like win of. Advantage, not an advantage, right? right? You know, if you're gonna, it, it makes a lot of sense to be to let the to let this, you know, if you don't have the advantage, why are you engaging? Especially if right. you're very mobile, right? <laughs> right. You're not you're not in where you can't get away. If you're more mobile and it's not a advantageous engagement, why are you engaging? You should be elsewhere, right? And you try know, again a different time. So there's a. Which is which is also why cavalry has that reputation for being cowardly by <laughs> by the infantry guy <laughs> for making business decisions. Yeah, so that's actually really interesting, Jack. So speaking of personalities, we got about ten minutes before we got to wrap up, but um, I wanted to kind of segue here and, and kind of wrap up with your game and talk a little bit about your the the board game that you developed or the uh, sort of the stra- the strategy game that you developed. Um, so I think personalities and kind of like thinking about personalities in terms of how they work in small unit uh, cohesion is actually a really good segue to that. So um, can you tell us a little bit about um, about the game that you developed? Yeah, so um, especially when I was younger, I was, was kind of into skirmish war games um, like Mordheim and historical war gaming and stuff like that. Um, and... Uh, as I did more and more research on small unit combat and stuff, I, I kind of, I wanted, I, I, I ended up creating a, uh, uh, and I always kind of tinkered with rules and made my own rule sets. And I went, okay, I want to see if I can create a rule set that, that, that has all of this stuff in, in a simple, really kind of like baseline mechanical way that's not overly complicated. Because if it's overly complicated, there's probably connections that i'm missing you know like how in physics if, if uh, the more simple the and elegant the formula is the more likely it is to be uh an accurate understanding of the physics at play um, we got we got a default to so Stephen kept, for like, that one because he's our physicist <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like it, it, as i research i try and see and well well does it how does this fit in in the in this model and how does this fit in and how does this fit in and um yeah, I created this idea of like a war game based on Fiori's four virtues, which are kind of more the humors, to be honest. But the virtues are kind of cooler names, um, yeah. and 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 the virtues and the humors are very much linked. Um, right. So, um, but yeah, it's it's like we developed a skirmish war game for like one to. 20 models that's currently only infantry because cavalry will be a bit of its own own thing i wanted to start simple um but yeah you you use decks to outfit and train your troops and based on which uh virtue you have a pool each officer has a pool of virtues and depending on which virtues i choose to do an action on a crit success or a crit fail on the dice it has a specific uh result so if i move with prudence on movement if i have a crit success they might and they will have they'll move as if they're in cover if they're if they roll a crit fail they might run they might move away from the enemy because they're being overly prudent okay 
and also tactical choice yeah yeah exactly and because you're using choosing how many of these virtue you're spending out of your officer's pool for every each virtue you spend you roll a dice and you pick the best so the more focus you invest in commanding your troops the more likely an action is going to go well but then you might be caught short not being able to focus enough on this on another action so you have this idea of divided attention um, that's going on where you where you have and as you take casualties you lose virtue and as you lose virtue your guys become less effective and if you run out of virtue and there's nobody within uh, uh, the, there's, the troops don't have anybody close by with virtue they'll flee because you start you know that idea of morale yeah yeah it, it, so it, there's a lot of um, one thing that I really wanted to do is I wanted it to feel like you're having to really think about command and control um, and how you build your force, how you outfit your force, how you train your force. Um, and you can really customize your force to create these different kind of weird mixes that you have. You can have an Italian uh, uh, yeah, an Italian Landsknecht deck. You mix the t- because it's all based on these decks. You can mix the decks and flavor them based on what you want. And, you know, you have your character decks for dastardly mercenaries and your more Renaissance man. And uh, soon, hopefully, we will be also coming out with the next step is um, character decks for your warband to simulate which uh, fencing master they might be studying. Nice. <laughs> so a a Bolognese uh, uh, a Bolognese armed uh, and trained um, pi- uh, pike uh, brisilieri pike block is definitely uh, something that can that you can do in that you should be able to do in the game very soon. Uh, but you can already already start doing kind of aspects of that. But the, it's like that command and control is very important to us. There's also aspects of um, resource management in the virtues and how you're using them. Um, aspects of kind of like how you want your guys to work together, how much ratios of officers. Because at this time period, one thing I found really fascinating in my research is nobody really understands how to make all these new technologies work with the old technologies. Everybody's experimenting and trying new things. Like, do we stick with the land structure? Do we use people in, 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 do we use one type of troop? Like, how many officers do we have? Do we, you know, or do we want to rely more on banners for command and control? Or is it sergeants? Or is it veterans that can kind of move by themselves and do their own things? You have a lot of this experimentation going on. Um, so that's the game. That's where the game is at the, at the moment. You can kind of you can find us. The game is called Force of Virtue. You can find us on masterstrokegames.com. dot um, Jay Maxwell uh, is the publisher. He sells it through Tempest Fugitives. Um, so another Hema name that you know that you guys have uh, you guys already know. Um, the first uh, edition of the game is mainly focused on Rome and fighting in the crumbling streets of Rome as the kind of the Italian wars kick kick off and the um, uh, Borgias are about to be uh, elected. Um, at some point, if you wanted to, we can go into like more of the details of how which different elements of the game come from diff- different aspects of sources. But uh, I think we're hitting the end of our road here. 
sadly. Yeah. Well, the one thing I should say is a Bolognese pike block should have a bonus when fighting over loot. You know, that, that, specialty. You know that 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 we we can talk about that. That could be a card. Um, yeah. The Ital- the Spanish already have a card where they, they 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 you know close to the objective they have a they have some advantages and right. the uh, the the dogs of war deck uh, character deck adds a bunch of that stuff too. Okay, cool. That sounds like a fun game. I'd like to check yeah, that out. Too- yeah. <laughs> so so while we're making requests, I've got two. Right. So the Spanish under Cesare Borgia when he was up in Imola also had a, a tendency to basically just poop in everything, including, like, old wine casks, <laughs> and it really pissed off everybody else. Like, it pissed off the Germans, it pissed off the Italians. They were like, are you serious? Like, we would have reused that. And the, the Spanish were like, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a latrine. It is what it is, you know? So um, I don't know if you can make that <laughs> an element I'm gonna in the game. Think, think, I'm going to have to, like, that might, like... You know, how to make that a mechanical element of the game is a really interesting game design puzzle. Um, like, you could easily make it, like, scenario objectives, remo- remo- uh, remove all the empty wine pots from the, from the Spanish players so they can no longer shit in them. Um, just a mission. So, you know, that 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 would be an interesting scenario that would definitely be in the game, um, or get in uh, and and build them a latrine. That that that, that would. There you go. You know, you you, you you turn you turn the captain's tent their captain's tent into a latrine so that they you know and maybe or maybe you have to like get in and throw all the shit filled canisters into their tents. Uh, maybe, but as a scenario that works. But how how uh, yeah. how to? I mean, I guess bar- you could have a card like barbaric ways or something that make that you play just destroys unit cohesion yeah if if it's a spanish and they're with italians then all of a sudden like it just turns them against each other but if it's spanish and spanish they're fine you know yeah that 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 would actually be very that yeah we already were thinking of doing that in the scenario some stuff like that in the scenario deck so yeah that, that that would fit but like making it specifically feces oriented is Maybe that goes in the flavor text of that of that card. Of like, yeah. uh, well, why are you shitting in, in in our wine jars, uh, Pedro? This makes no sense. Yeah. Stop shitting so, in our and, wine And then the last one, uh, as, as a character, uh, we're we're gonna do a spotlight on him a little bit later, and uh, I can share some information with you. But there's a character named uh, Friar Leonardo Prado. Um, he is a uh, he's a hospital or knight. And um, every time he takes a break from fighting, so he actually, uh, he joins up, uh, he gets besieged by um, uh, Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordoba, the great captain. Um, and uh, he's in, in southern Naples. And then he ends up joining up with Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordoba, fights with him at uh, Serignola and uh, Garliano River uh, battle. So like against Bayard, against, with Borgia at some point. Um, and uh, he is uh, every time he takes a break in like summertime when, or I guess in wintertime, whenever whenever they take a break from fighting, uh, he goes and he goes back to being a pirate in the Mediterranean, and uh, he's just a holy pirate. He's a priest <laughs> and a pirate, and uh, that's that's his role. And he's an amazing character in history. So, um, yeah, love to love to see him show up at some point. 
So there's a few things that I definitely want to do with the game. One thing is like the once we get a few things out of the way, like the the fencing master decks and a War of the Roses expansion, because everybody wants War of the Roses because reasons. Um, but (laughs) so good at self promotion. Then you know after that, it's doing Italian wars proper and adding our the ability to play multiplayer with artillery and also being able to play cavalry. And cavalry is going to be its own 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 thing because I'm nerdy that way. But after that's out of the way, and if we ever, if we actually end up making the game is popular enough, I would love to do a Mediterranean expansion. Cool. Which is going to be a lot of fun because you have all the Ottomans and the and the uh, Knights of Saint John doing piracy stuff. But also, your 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 uh, Halloween episode on uh, dueling uh, um, holy orders. Duking it out to find out who has the right to uh, to summon uh, demons yeah. is definitely making me hasten uh, adding an occult character deck. Nice. So you can have nice. occultists. Sweet. So you could have your Morozzo, Bolognese, occultist, uh, Brazilieres, uh on the yeah. field. I love it. Pretty awesome. I love it. Hey, you know, I, it's, I, I have a friend, uh, Max Fishman. He actually brought this up with me. Um, and this is something to chew on. I'll, I'll leave you with this because I think we're, we're kind of running up against it here. But um, the words like mutirin and duplirin are actually alchemical words. And there's an yes, element yeah, of, yeah. of like an alchemical nature to a lot of the nomenclature and verbiage that you see in the KDF system. You know that, that I'd actually love to talk to him about it. The one of the issues I think you do run into when you're doing German that you're not used to as an ang- anglophone is German just has a lot fewer words. Hmm. Like English uses a different word well, for everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But like, I mean, English likes to use. I mean, like, I'm not saying this is that he's necessarily wrong, but like, this is how a lot of German wordplay tends to work. In that, whereas English, you know, the puns work a bit, but in German, because you're using the same kind of words for a whole bunch of different uses or rebuilding them in different ways, but a lot of times you just use the same words for in different contexts. Okay. A lot of allusions work on using the same, saying reusing the word, same word in different ways, right. and how the flavors you bring in are how you reuse them and combine them with other words, and the fact that you're making references to all these other places where the word is word is used by using that word, whereas in English, you create meaning by choosing exactly the that word out of the five different words that mean almost exactly the same thing, but not quite. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That makes you sense. You know, it's just a, yeah. So, like, you know, sekriro, for example, seke is also um, a uh, a tick, but also a tick or a blood sucking insect, but it's also like you know, uh, bullying, like a bull- bullying or mobbing or cat fighting, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like a, a sekirai is like a cat fight, you know. Interesting. So you have like a lot of allusions going on in the words that you use, and it's also the German, like a lot of the added meaning that clarifies all this stuff comes back into the cases and the grammatical structures. 
in modern German, but the medieval German is so kind of jumbled, a lot of the grammatical structures aren't as clear, like which case is being used and stuff like that. Um, so, like, a lot of that added, a, a lot of that what meaning, uh, added meaning that would come to the grammatical form in the cases is gone because they're just not that good at using the language in a written form. The spelling isn't standardized and the grammatical rules aren't standardized in the same way yet. And they're regional then. Yeah. Yes. God, I hate as a southern Southern German trying to translate northern German text. (laughs) It's it's completely different. Yeah. Well, that was awesome, Jack. Uh, I want to thank you again for coming on, man. That was um, yeah, that, that was, was great. great. I, I was I, I learned so much. Uh, really appreciate you coming and sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah, I kind of oh, had an you. idea. I really of doing appreciate it. I love too. being on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you ever do the uh, Command and Conquer games? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I I, I was had kind of a vision of doing something like that with with uh, this sort of thing. Yeah. I I have to say I was uh, in my day I've gone cold turkey on 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 gaming, but in my day I was a slight total war addict. Okay, nice. Oh yeah, nice. total war is the best. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. All right, cool man. All thanks, right. guys. Well, thanks, Jack. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I appreciate yeah. it. Oh hey. You made it this far. Awesome. Well, we have a special offer for you. Thanks to Jack Gassman, you, our lovely, loyal listener who made it to the end of this podcast, have an opportunity to get 20% off Force of Virtue. Use the code LAYARTE DE L'ARMEE FTW exclamation point on an order of Force of Virtue on the web store and you'll get 20% off. That's capital L apostrophe lowercase a-r-t-e-d-e-l-l-a-r-m-i capital f capital t capital w exclamation point for 20 percent off your order a force of virtue thanks jack